Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. Uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you after all this. If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the passage we just read, Ephesians chapter 5. If you're new here this morning, we've been in a series for the last month and a half or so uh, called Intentional. Okay, It's a series about gender and how we think about our gender as followers of Jesus. I don't have the time to recap the whole series um, for you at this point, but I'm going to try to hit some highlights. Um, a lot of it's been, well, we've been working from this idea that men and women are created by God, both equal in worth and dignity, and also distinct from one another in significant ways. And we have said that while those ideas can be difficult to hold in tension with one another, they're both beautiful ideas and worth fighting for in how we think about men and women. So if you're a man, what it looks like for you to be masculine is to look more like Jesus. And if you're a woman, it looks like for you to look more like Jesus. That is the Bible's primary purpose for you. In a lot of the series, we've been processing on how to embody those very ideas of our, of our understanding of ourselves. And last week, we turned the corner and started thinking about those ideas, how it plays out in relationships with one another. Last Sunday, Kent talked about how gender informs the way we think about friendships between men and women, something that doesn't often get much airtime in the church. This week, we're going to talk about a different type of relationship, that of marriage. And specifically, we're going to ask and answer the question, how does our gender inform the way we think about and approach our marriage? Now, really quickly, before we get into the passage, I want to say just about any time we talk about marriage on stage, our church is really blessed to have somewhere around 50% people who are married, as well as 50% people who are single. We celebrate that because we think this really helps us have a really balanced approach when it comes to teachings like this. But that also does mean in a teaching about marriage, it may feel it does not apply to half the people in this room. So if you're single in this room, how should you think about a teaching like this? I'll give you a couple things. First one, most statistics tells us that even if you're not married right now in America, somewhere around three out of four people will eventually be married at some point in their lives. So even if this teaching doesn't apply to you right this very moment, at least there's a decent chance it will be at some point. But second, even if you're one out of the four people that doesn't get married, chances are high that you do know someone who is married. And especially if you're part of a church, you'll probably live in pretty close relationship with people who are married. So even if the ideas we set forth today don't apply to you directly, they could still be really helpful in giving you the ability to speak biblically and wisely into the lives of the friends that who are married in your life. So here's what I just said. Single folks, you have the authority to speak into married folks' life. Not because of your own wisdom or your experience or lack of, your authority comes from Scripture. So in summary, there's still some good reasons to listen to what we're covering this morning. 
With that being said, let's dive into the passage, Ephesians 5, because I was up here when Katie read the passage a moment ago. I had a distinct pleasure of watching Katie read the word submit and watch a good many of you cringe and squirm a little bit. And we're going to dig into that word in just a bit, but I want to make sure we are grasping the overall context of the passage. And we do that by starting verse 21. Take a look with me there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul, writing to the entire Ephesian church, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This, believe it or not, is the heading for everything that follows in Ephesians 5, at least into the beginning of chapter 6, which means this is the heading of the instructions for husband and wives. And that's what we're going to get into today. Everything that follows are specific instructions on how exactly we should practice submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This will be like this. Imagine that I walk back to City Kids today during the gathering, and everything back there is pure chaos, war zone. Now, parents, don't be alarmed. Melanie does a great job to make sure this is not the case. But let's just imagine for a second that's what's going on. There's biting, screaming, yelling, big crocodile tears from some of the kids. Things are way out of hand. In that scenario, if I wanted to help, I might say something like this to all the kids. I want all of you to get along with each other. And then I'll follow up with wit. I want you, I want you to start sharing with Stella. Stella, I want you to be nice to your sister. Nora, I want you to stop screaming at people and talk to them nicely instead. Jonah, stop hitting Ben with that toy. Luke, you're grumpy because you're holding in poop. Go poop. <laughs> that's my son, and that's a real thing in our household. <laughs> so did you hear what I did? I gave one big overarching command to all the kids, get along with each other. And then I give specific instructions to how to do that. And they were unique to each kid, but they all fit under the heading, get along with each other. I think that's very much similar to what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 5. The big overarching instruction is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that applies to everybody. So side note, while we may cringe at the word submit, it itself cannot be a bad word for followers of Jesus, because it is an instruction given to all followers of Jesus. But he follows that with instructions about unique and distinct ways that he wants different people to apply that instruction. Specifically in our passage today, he gives one type of instruction to wives and one type of instruction to the husbands. Here's why that's important. Once again, we have to hold these ideas in tension. So if we try to apply the commands of husband and wives while ignoring that we should all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, we have misunderstood this passage deeply. But also, if we try to apply the command to submit to one another in ways that ignore the specific and distinct ways that Paul tells husbands to do and wives to do, we have also misunderstood the passage deeply. Do you see the tension? You might say that this passage is both equality and distinct which is what we've been trying to unpack, that very concept since the beginning of the series. So submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the equality. Now let's dive 
into the distinction. Let's, and to do that, we're going to actually jump to the instructions to the husbands first, and then we'll circle back to the wives. Skip down to verse 25. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the word, washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and take care of their own body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Okay. Here's why I wanted to cover the commands to the husbands first. I think all the commotion around this passage with the word submit actually is distracting us from something very important. I think sometimes we get so hung up on one instruction for the wives, we brush right over the radical nature of the instruction to the husbands in this passage. Case in point, in my 18 years following after Jesus, I have heard dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons talking about what it looks like for the wives to submit to their husbands. And I have yet to hear a sermon that's centered on what it looks like for the husband to give himself up for his wife. So today, we're going to start off with that. What does Paul mean in these instructions to the husbands? First, we'll start with the phrase, give himself up. What does that mean exactly? In Greek, the word here is peridedami. Didami? I'm Chinese. Greek is not my forte. <laughs> I did look it up. It means to hand over, deliver over, or even betray. It's actually the same word used when Judas betrayed Jesus to the people who eventually crucified Jesus. It's a fairly strong word. The English, the English translation, giving himself up, doesn't really fully capture it. What Paul is saying here, in the same way that Judas handed over, abandoned, and betrayed Jesus, that is what we are ought to do with our own lives for the good of the woman we are married to. When I get married, all my personal dreams, aspirations, life goals, all those things go on the chopping block. They all have now been run through the filter of whether or not they serve just me or whether they serve me and my wife. It means that now as a husband, my wants take a back seat to my wife's needs. Now, I want to be clear, when I say needs, I mean things like relationship with Jesus, a Jesus-filled community, as well as things like food, water, shelter, basic well-being. A while back, well, actually, not even a while back, last week, my wife Callie tried really hard to convince me we need a golden doodle. <laughs> and as cute as golden doodles are, I don't think that is a need. I don't mean that everything your wife says she needs comes before you, but the things she truly needs, do. When your wife comes to you with a legitimate need, husbands, you don't really get to say, I don't want to do that. You're called to give that up. Betray and abandon your very life for the good of your wife. In addition to that, Paul goes on to say in verse 26 through 30 that a husband actually has a responsibility 
towards his wife. Not just to meet her needs, but to ensure she is thriving and growing and becoming more like Jesus. In the defining the role of a husband, Paul observed how Jesus gave himself up to make the church holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word and presenting her to himself radiant without stain or blemish or wrinkle or anything else. If I were to summarize that, I might put it like this. Husbands, you have a responsibility to do everything in your power to help your wife flourish. Not just to put food on the table, not just to put a roof over her head, but to see that she is becoming everything God made her to be. In other words, most of the time, submitting to you should be as easy as because there should be a pattern of you doing this, having her good in mind. So here's what's interesting about this passage in Ephesians 5. This passage would have been every bit as controversial in its day as it is in ours, but for very different reasons. We tend to read this passage and get incredibly uncomfortable with the wives submit to your husband's part. But imagine with me that somehow all of this time travel to Ephesus while this letter is being read to the early believers. Guy gets up, he says, we have a letter from Paul, and he has instructions for us. He starts reading it. Wives, submit to your husbands. And all of us get tense, and we look around the room, but the early believers just kind of nodding and says, yeah, that makes sense. They go, Obviously, that's what wives are called to do. And then the reader continues. And you can see they slow down their pace as they start unpacking and get too closer to the husband's part. And every single word, it seems like they're dragging and sort of become more and more pronounced. There's this crescendo building. And then they got to the part that says, Husbands, abandon your lives for your wife, just as Jesus abandoned his for the church. Now, those of us who time travel have been, yeah, that makes sense. You, you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, my dude. <laughs> what are you talking about? But then we look around, we see people start squirming. That's when people would have started mumbling under their breath and start walking out because nobody in that society at the time would have thought husbands should take that type of posture towards their wives. But Paul, apparently, thinks that's absolutely essential. Husbands, abandon your lives for the good of your wife, just like Christ abandoned his life for the good of the church. So I got a friend who's married a couple years back. He got offered a job paying twice as much as currently making in an amazing city as well. And this is his, the logical next step in his career. And he really wanted to take it. But here's what he knew. His wife had a number of Jesus-centered relationships and friendship in the city they currently live in. And he knew she was growing spiritually and emotionally more than she ever had in their marriage. So he thought about it, prayed about it, talked to his community about it, talked to her about it, and decided to turn down the job. For him, that's what it looked like to abandon his life for the good of his wife so that she could continue to grow and thrive and flourish. It meant what he wanted took a back seat to what she needed. I'll give you something on a smaller scale. 
another married friend of mine, his wife and him are both whatever the opposite of a morning person is. And it turns out that they have an infant who loves to get up in the morning. <laughs> and for some of you who don't know, there's some similarities between infants and terrorists. They cannot <laughs> be negotiated with. So every morning, 6 a.m. sharp, the infant gets up. But my friend knew one of the best ways for his wife to grow and flourish is for her to get a good night's rest and then wake up to get spent time in the Bible. So here's what he does. He sets his alarm for 5.45 a.m., which he tells me feels slightly like a bit of torture to him so that he can be awake, spend some time in Scripture himself, and then be ready to hang out with the baby while his wife gets a little extra bit of sleep and in time in the Bible. For him, that is one smart part of abandoning his life for the good of his wife so she can flourish. Here's another way of putting it. Husbands in the room, if your wife is struggling spiritually, what are you doing about it? I think my own tendency when my wife Callie isn't doing well is, well, she better get her stuff together. I can't pull two people's weight around here. But husbands, here's the thing according to this passage. In some ways, that is exactly your job. That's exactly my job. God literally calls husbands to love their wives as their own body. Now, there is such a thing as enabling, where you take so much responsibility for her that she doesn't ever take any responsibility for herself. But I bet that isn't the error that most of us are making here. More of us err on the side of neglecting to take much responsibility for our wife flourishing at all. Most of us are not even aware what God is teaching our wives or whether or not she's in scripture or does she have a thriving time in prayer. We don't even know that. Husbands, I know I appreciate when people are blunt with me, so I'm assuming you appreciate it too. Let me get as direct as I know how to be. If your expectation of what it means to be a husband is for you to go to work, make money, so that you don't have to do much anything else, that you have, gotten, you have not understand your calling to be a husband, according to the Bible. If you think that going to work each day earns you the right to come home, sit in front of the TV, or to play Xbox or Netflix or whatever, all evening while your wife makes dinner, take, clean the house and keep the children alive and breathing, you are nowhere near close to giving up yourself, to betray yourself, to abandon your life for your wife. Instead, I would encourage you to turn off the TV, turn off the Xbox, spend some time asking your wife what she needs, or just observing from the Bible and from her life, what does she need? And I would encourage you to do whatever it takes to give yourself up for her so that she can in turn thrive and flourish. And the reason I want you to do that is because that is exactly what Jesus has already done for you. That's what he chose to do even when it was difficult, even when it was challenging, because that was the best thing to do. And we as husbands were called to be a picture of Jesus to the woman we're married to. So let's look for ways to do just that. In fact, nourishment is exactly the type of language Paul uses to describe all of this in verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one 
ever hated their own body, but they feed and take care. In other words, nourish their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. In general, we take care of our bodies to nourish it, to feed it. In the same way, we're called to see our wives as integrated as who we are, to nourish and to take care of it. It's amazing the difference it it makes when you stop seeing your wife as just another person you do life with, but instead start to see her as she is your life. what's What's good for her is what's good for you. What spiritually benefits her spiritually benefits you. All right, now that we're talking about husbands, let's circle back to Paul's instruction towards wives. Jump back to verse 22 with me. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to her husbands in everything. Let's dig into this word. The word submit here means to place yourself under or after somebody else. That is the posture that scripture teaches wives should have towards their husband. Now, a a couple quick clarification before we unpack what that does look like. First, this is not talking about all women submitting to all men. Notice Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Not all husbands Not all women to all men, wives to your own husbands. Second, this does not mean wives submit to their husband's sinful behavior or encouraging her to participate in sinful behavior. Wives, if your husband wants you to do something the Bible forbids or forbids you to do something that the Bible commands, you actually have a moral obligation not to submit to your husband. Your allegiance is first to Jesus, not first to your husband. And third, submission is not silence. Submission is not a calling for wives to leave their brain, their wisdom, their voice at the door. If your husband needs biblical correction, correct him. If he isn't thinking about something the way he should, help him think about it better. Submission doesn't mean you sit idly when your husband needs you sorely. Remember two weeks ago, Genesis calls women to be an empowering strength to her husband. Wives, you're to bring all of your wisdom, all of your giftedness, all of your strength to the marriage as you submit to your husband. And fourth, it doesn't mean submitting to abuse of any kind. When Paul says women should submit to their husband, he's not saying they should put themselves or their children under the care of abusive men. Wives, if your husband ever uses these ideas in this passage to try to keep you suffering under abuse, I want you to tell somebody, either to one of our pastors or one of our female staff, but tell somebody. We'll see that it is dealt with immediately and that you are safe in the meantime. Now, none of these four things are what Paul means by submitting to your husband. With all that cleared out of the way, what does Paul mean when he says wife submitting to her husband? I think Paul is instructing wives to submit to the selfless responsibility that her husband has been given. 
He's asking a wife to honor the effort that her husband puts forward to love and care and sacrifice for her. He means her allowing her husband to work towards her spiritual maturity and benefit and responding receptively to it. It means when your husband's engaging you on something, responding well to him and doing that. It means when he suggests something that benefits you, that actually benefits you, whether you like it or not, hearing him out and responding humbly to it. Think about Paul's language. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. So think about all of our relationships with Jesus for a second. In that relationship, Jesus, via the Holy Spirit, is putting forth effort daily to help us to look and become more like him. And as his people, it is our job to do everything we can to respond humbly to his efforts in that, to do everything we can to receive that and not fight it. Do we do that perfectly in our relationship with Jesus? Not even close. But that's what we aim to do. That's the posture we aim for, and that's what submission means. Paul says that in the same way that wives should submit to their husband, it means that as he puts effort to love and give himself up for her, to help her to become more like Jesus, she responds humbly to those efforts. She's doing everything she can to receive that and not fight it. Would she do that perfectly? No. But she does aim to make that her posture. That's what submission means. So ladies in the room, I want to put this as gently as I can, but I do think it needs to be said. Some of you have areas in your life that you won't let your husbands engage you on, no matter how gently or humbly and sacrificially he tries to do so. Maybe, in that regard, maybe it's in the regard to your relationship with Jesus or certain sin issues in your life. Maybe it's regarding how you use your money or how, regarding how you relate to other people, how you even approach parenting. It could be any of a number of different things. But whatever it is, sometimes the tendency is to resist your husband's loving, engaging you in those things, to turn it back on him, or to point out his mistakes, or redirect, or whatever the response may be. And on some level, that's understandable. That's all of our tendency when someone engages us on things we don't want to talk about. But if you continue to respond in that way to your husband, a few things may happen as a result. You crush any desire in him to love and lead you like Jesus. You'll leave him extremely vulnerable to sinful expressions of leadership, either at home or at work. And you'll all but ensure that you're much slower to become more like Jesus because your husband's the primary means of God's going to sanctify you through marriage. Submitting to your husband means letting him love and care for you like Jesus, even when parts of you want to resist it. Allowing your husband to be who Jesus made him to be in your marriage for your good. Submitting to him means placing yourself in a place where those efforts can do their best work. In the same way, the husband is called to abandon his whole life for his wife. The wife is called to submit her whole life to her husband. And I'm not even saying submitting to her husband is easy. Not at all. Because of our own sin, 
Every single one of us struggle to perfectly submit to Jesus, even though he loves and engages us perfectly. So I can't imagine trying to submit to your own, your own husband who is far from, like, far from perfect like Jesus. So I'm hoping this will help with that tension. Submitting to your own husband is not a blind trust to your husband. It's actually trusting the spirit of God at work in your husband. That as you submit to your own husband, he is also submitting himself to Jesus, living and repenting into the role that God has given him, laying down his own life for your good. Wives, your submission comes down to trusting God's work in your husband and his design for your marriage that will bring forth flourishment for you and your family and his glory. So wives, when your husband comes to you and engage you on bitterness towards a friend or family member and encourages you to take it to Jesus, assume that he's coming from a genuine place. Assume that he might see something you may not see. Now, does that mean he's necessarily right? No. Feel free to dialogue about it, but also give him the benefit of the doubt that he is at least have your best interests at heart in bringing it up. When your husband says he thinks you and your family should be at a life group this week because you haven't been in a few weeks, even though you're both tired and stressed, assume he's coming from a good place and saying that because of the need to be around community who loves you and Jesus, assuming he's saying it for your good. I understand this is wildly a difficult command. The wives, do you know our church probably would not look the same unless my wife Callie really trusted God's design for marriage. A little quick fact for y'all to know about Callie. She loves the South Carolina Gamecocks. She was an athlete there. She did her undergrad and graduate degree there. She loves the Gamecocks. Now, the Gamecocks returned her love with mediocrity, but that's not the point. Callie also loves Columbia, South Carolina where the Gamecocks play. It's her favorite city, and I honestly don't know why. I grew up there. <laughs> if it was up to her, she will live her whole life there, dress our son Luke in only garnet and black, and then when she dies, she wants to be buried in William Bryce Stadium. <laughs> but early in our relationship, Callie knew God was calling me to help plan a church one day. She knows it means one day we have to move away from the city that she loves, from the, from the sports team that she loves. And she trusted me that, not, that this will not only be good for the kingdom of God, but it also be good for our family as well. And in her submission to that, she didn't play a passive role. It was her pushing me in moments when I started to get comfortable with the life that we had in South Carolina and stop taking steps towards planting a church. It was her pushing me to start the pastor and training process at our sending church. She was there when the weight of ministry came, crush, came crushing down, and I wanted to give up. I wouldn't be the pastor or even the follower of Jesus today unless Callie truly believes the role that God has called her. Sorry, I didn't know this was going to happen. <laughs> Callie truly believed she was called to be empowering strength in a submissive wife. And she and I actually came across a couple while we were engaged 
what we actually saw the Ephesians 5 lived out beautifully. One of the things that we did, we kind of were engaged as we grabbed dinners with other married couples and asked them about marriages and trying to do as best as we can to learn from them, to hear from them how they responded to sufferings in life and difficulties of marriage. And one particular couple we met, they were married for over 40 years. And during that dinner, the husband shared about how hard it was to lay down his life over the years. That was challenging to hear, but, but what stood out for Cal and I was when the wife started sharing her side. As we talked, we got to see her reflect the last 40 years of how she put herself after her husband as he laid down his life for her. The wife was tearing up as she talked. We thought she was tearing up because she was reflecting the difficulties in the last 40 years. She went on to explain she was tearing up because of the joy that was swelling inside of her because she recounted all those years just how much she flourished and grown. That in the last four years, she only had loved Jesus more and more and more. She was recounting the beautiful fruit that has bear because the last 40 years of how their marriage has reflected Ephesians 5. It brought tears to our eyes because we can see the deep joy inside of her. We can see the genuine love that she has for Jesus. So before we're done, I want to try to answer a lingering question about all of this. All of this works great assuming that both a husband and the wife are doing their part. A husband who loves like Jesus, in theory, is an easy husband to submit to. A wife who submits to her husband, in theory, is an easy wife to sacrifice for. But what if your spouse doesn't embody those very things? Or very often, what should you do then? I'll give you three things to do in that situation. First one, talk to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. If your spouse is not embodying these postures regularly, the first and most important thing to do is pray. Ask Jesus through the Spirit to change that in your spouse. I once heard a friend say that he makes it a goal to talk to God about his wife just as much as he talks to his wife about God. I think that's such a good way of putting it. How often do we try to make our spouse fit and mold what we think they should be versus asking God to make them more like him. Because one of those things is going to be more effective. So when you feel like your spouse is embodying a Christ-like posture, talk to Jesus about those things. Second, point your spouse to Jesus. Point your spouse to Jesus. Look for ways to direct your spouse towards Jesus in ways that he can prompt changes in their posture. Do that in conversations with the gospel. Do that encouraging them towards other men and women that do embody Christ-like character so they can get a vision for what it looks like. Look for ways to encourage them towards who God has made them to be so that they are changed by it. Point them to Jesus. And third, embody Jesus-like posture towards them anyway. One of the easiest things to do in marriage is to shift blame. It is easy for us as men to say, well, if my wife would more readily submit to me, I would be more sacrificial in my posture towards her. But do you know the only problem with that? The church never 
perfectly submits to Jesus, and he still choose to sacrifice himself for her. It's sometimes easy for wives to say, well, if my husband sacrificed for me like Jesus, I would be quicker to submit to him. And the only problem with that is Jesus perfectly sacrificed himself for all of us and none of us perfectly submitted to him. So here's my point. We can try to shift blame and make our spouse the person at fault that we don't, when we don't heed the instructions that Paul gives but we still have a responsibility to do our part, even when they aren't doing theirs. I think, it's imp- I think it's telling that Paul doesn't offer this teaching as a way to bludgeon your spouse with. He doesn't say, husbands, tell your wives to submit to you like Christ submits. To- uh, husbands, tell your wives to submit to you like the church submits to Christ. He doesn't say, wives, tell your husbands to give himself up for you just like Christ gave himself up for the church. This passage isn't meant to be used as ammunition to fire at your spouse. It's meant to be used as instruction to help you embody the gospel in your marriage. And you get to do that regardless whether or not your spouse is doing that perfectly for you. And I think what you'll find is more, the more you commit to embodying these postures, regardless whether or not your spouse does, the more they will want to embody their part too. I've seen that played out time and time again in marriages in our church. So let's close out our passage and we'll be done. Look at with me in verse 31. Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And that's a quote from Genesis. But, Paul, but look at what Paul says next. This is profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Paul takes this quote from the Old Testament about marriage, the very first marriage between Adam and Eve, and he turns to say he's actually talking about Christ and the church. Here's what he's saying. For followers of Jesus, marriage is not actually about marriage. Marriage is not an end in and of itself. Marriage, according to Paul, is actually about the gospel about the relationship between Jesus and his people. Marriage is actually designed to be a picture of living, breathing advertisement of the gospel, of the fact that Jesus went to the cross to rescue us from our sin and grants us freedom from our sin. That's actually what our marriages are supposed to be about. Now, here's why it's important um, for us to make sense of everything. Here's important why it's important to know all of that. Because once you realize marriage is about Jesus, some stuff starts to click when it wouldn't have clicked otherwise. If marriage is about Jesus, it will make sense why Paul keeps drawing the connection back to the relationship between Jesus and his people. It will make sense why when he says husband should abandon his life for his wife, he draws the connection of how Jesus abandoned his life for the church. It would make sense of why when he says, why submit to your husband, he points back to people how Christ submits to the church. I mean, how church submits to Christ. Or to put it slightly differently, in a marriage between two followers of Jesus, both spouses get to play the Jesus role for one another. Both of them do. A husband gets to play the Jesus role by abandoning and forsaking his very life for the good of his wife. 
And the wife gets to play the Jesus role by submitting to her husband, much like Jesus himself repeatedly submitted himself to the will of the Father. Both spouses are called to Christ-likeness a bit in unique, different ways. But something should be alarming about all this, namely that it is impossible, that it is impossible for us broken, flawed human beings to love one another perfectly and persistently, to reflect the perfect love that's been shown to us by God. This is where it's helpful to know that the gospel is not only our example, but is also our forgiveness. Whenever a husband fails to love and take responsibility for his wife, he can lean on Jesus who takes away his sin and brings reconciliation to his marriage. Whenever a wife sins, whenever a wife's sin hinders her ability to love and respect and submit to her husband, she can lean on Jesus who removes her sin and restores her marriage. The beauty of the gospel is that it makes much of God, not just through the success of marriages, but also through the failures. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The gospel gives us infinite wisdom to work through the most difficult parts of our marriage and sin. When you find yourself at the point and you go, can I forgive him one more time? Can I do it? I feel like there's nothing left in the tank in me to do so. You can Not because you have something within you, but you get to draw on the infinite resource that is grace found in the gospel because you have been forgiven much infinitely in fact now you get to take that that's where you draw that power from so when you find yourself go i don't think i have anything left in me the good news is it's not within you it's to look to the gospel and to jesus we now have hope in our marriages because the gospel takes away all things that feels like we cannot be reconciled This is why marriages can be so wonderful and so painful at the same time, because it points to the gospel, which is also wonderful and painful at the same time. The secret to marriage is that the more your marriage looks like Christ and his people, the more healthy your marriage will be, because that's what's meant to reflect. That's what is meant to point to. Let's pray.